0: right and we are rolling once again I am Lee Grant this is Kevin Pendergrass and we are exploring faith and pursuing grace and Joining us tonight as a guest that we had on some months ago, Scott Lloyd is coming back on the program, and we have a really interesting topic this evening. We're going to be talking about a a, a fallacy, a logical fallacy. Now, is well, this being, a formal uh, or so informal glad to be fallacy? here? First of all, and this is, is a formal, is
1: formal fallacy that we deal with in debate and persuasion, and people just kind of fall into this thinking that you know, I can take a position that is between two extremes and that's going to make me more believable and understood. But in fact, it's just a false understanding of, of what it means to be persuasive. And as we get into tonight, I think you guys will understand what I'm talking about.
0: Yeah, this is gonna be a fun episode. This is gonna be a good discussion. I know Kevin's been looking forward to this one. Whenever he told me that you had uh, agreed to come back on to have this discussion, I, I got a little excited on the inside as well. I've uh, I've never really studied logic formally, but I do have some books that I've read and gone through with some other exercises and it and it's really amazing whenever you understand or have a better understanding of how logic works and how good argumentation works it's amazing how glaringly obvious poor yeah, reasoning and, can become. Go ahead. And it's no. also really surprising how subtle poor reasoning can be and how hard it can be to pick out.
2: Yeah. When, when oh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that when we were talking about this, I, I don't know exactly how it came up. I think uh, you and Candy, which is Scott's wife, y'all are hanging out over at our house and we were just talking like we always do. And, just discussing some some different uh, biblical themes and just talking about reasoning and philosophy. And uh, Scott, by the way, we've we've had him on the program before. But if you didn't hear that episode, um, that particular episode was on racism, and we discussed that with uh, some of our other good friends as well. We had five folks on that night with uh, Terrell and Sharon, and had a really good discussion. But Scott's also a professor; he teaches uh, debate, and so this is what he literally does for a living. And I, I didn't know that this was actually a technical fallacy until you you brought it up. I didn't know that this is something that you teach, that people study. And I actually yeah. came up with my own name for it. And so uh, I actually called it the Goldilocks Complex is what I called it. And I actually write about this in my first book, A Different Kind of Poison. And, and to let people know, when we talk about the idea of of, of the balance fallacy are going to the different extremes. I was taught that you don't need to go too far to the left, quote unquote, or too far to the right, but you have to be somewhere in the middle. That's where truth is. Truth is always somewhere in the middle. And uh, if you're familiar with the story, Goldilocks, you know, Goldilocks, she, she uh goldilocks and the three bears and you know one one bed was too small one bed was too big one bed was just right one bowl of porridge was was too hot one was too cold one was just right and i found that a lot of my professors in preaching school taught that truth was just right it wasn't too hot it wasn't too cold it wasn't too big it wasn't too small it was just right and it was almost this intangible concept that When you think about it for more than just a couple of minutes, it has all sorts of holes in it, which is what we're going to be talking about tonight. But this is something that I think is very common, very popular. And when I first started changing, people were telling me that I was just going from one extreme to the other. That was often an accusation (laughs) that was... Was thrown at me. And, and that was something that caused me to question because I'm like, well, I don't want to go to the other extreme. I don't want to, you know, just for forsake everything I know. I want to make sure that I don't veer off too far. I, I want to stay within truth. And so that's why I think this is such an important topic because you hear this all the time on Facebook discussions of people trying to always balance things out and say, well, we don't want to go too far. This direction and too far that direction, and so Scott, we're just super excited, man, to have you on, and I think this is just going to be sure. a great episode for folks. And so, go ahead if you will, and kind of I've I've given more or less the layman term and <laughs> how I had understood it. So so give more of the uh, scholarly understanding well, and, of and this. and before false I take a moment to explain exactly what
0: that is, I think it would exactly be helpful
1: for folks to why understand why it is, a as, as as you pointed out, that this comes across as such a reasonable understanding of things, right? And I think a lot of this is steeped in uh, dualism, which is an understanding that there is right and wrong, that there is light and there's dark, there's day, there's night, there's black and there's white. And so this is a very Western mindset of uh, way of thinking. When you look at Eastern perspectives, they have more of a yin and yang And you can see both sides as being very important to a relationship with one another. So because we get uh, trapped into these false dichotomies, we think that there are two extremes. So therefore, the the most reasonable perspective that we can take then is a, a middle pathway or a third alternative. But what I find is that a lot of people choose this because... They don't want to do the hard work of figuring out which side is right or which side is wrong, or they are afraid to take a stand because it may cost them personally. Uh, It may be an impediment to their influence or to their income. And so people are sometimes... Uh, looking for an easy way out. And so they they simply say, well, you know, I want to maintain a balance. I want to look and see both sides. and and that can be very, very reasonable and come across uh, for a lot of people as a very persuasive uh, and and good place to be. But as you mentioned, false balance, or sometimes called false equival- equ- equivalency, refers disparagingly to the practice of uh, journalists. Sometimes we see uh, doing this in their zeal to be fair. They present each side of a debate um, when in all actuality, there is evidence that is stacked heavily on one side. So we have an entire news network, right? The Fox Fox News Network has built uh, an entire brand around this idea of being fair and balanced. And people eat that up, right? And they embrace that. When, in all actuality, um, it's very easy to see that 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 Fox has an agenda, just like CNN, just like MSNBC, just like every news organization that's out there. They're not being fair and balanced, uh, but they are actually presenting an agenda that 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 is uh, that is leaning towards. The right side of of the political spectrum here in America, and so most often it's it's an idea that is employed in an attempt to stifle those uh, who uh, may have yes. uh, not uh, gained a better understanding of the complexities and nuances of an issue, because partisans generally uh, prefer uh, simplistic and binary understanding. So they they buy into this dualism. That there's a right and a wrong, a black and a white, a night and a day, and they embrace it um, as as some sort of reasonable middle of the road. When in fact um, they may be uh, betraying their own prejudices towards a certain perspective. For example, if 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 a news reporter came on um, one of our networks and said um, tonight. We're going to present both sides of the flat earth conundrum, right? And, and, and we're going to listen to all of the scientists who argue that, you know, the, the earth is a sphere. And, <laughs> but we're also going to give equal time to this small minority of people over here that still hold on to this, this idea that the earth is flat. Is there some merit In their understanding, well, that's laughable, and we would dismiss that, and justifiably so. But if if we truly hold to a balanced understanding, then you have to say, well, I'm going to listen to the 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 round earth folks and the flat earth folks, and I'm going to give them equal uh, uh, billing. And we just know that that's ludicrous. Um, But that's that's what we sometimes sound like when we embrace this balance fallacy.
0: Well, And that in and of itself doesn't necessarily mean that truth isn't found in the middle ground in some cases. Surely that's the case, but then you have to establish, well, what is the middle ground? What is the quote unquote right side of the equation? What's the left side of the equation? And how do we know that, you know, the truth isn't somewhere on that right side or that left side? Maybe that's the middle of the ground because you can always become more extreme or less extreme or or whatever else. And it really, I really like the example that you use, excuse me, regarding the flat earth movement It it really is wild whenever you look at it in those terms. The idea of giving equal airtime or equal merit to a position or set of positions or propositions that has no proof or at the very best spurious proof to back it up, it it really is not the best way forward.
2: Yeah, and something else, Scott, when you were talking about the... Uh, you, I think you brought up Fox News, yeah, just a moment ago, talking about fair and balance. That reminded me of when I was in preaching school because on their pamphlet that they used to hand out to to promote their, the school and why we should choose them over other preaching schools and seminaries, it, it, their tagline mm-hmm. was, um, "I'm trying to think exactly what it was. It may not be in this order, but it was sound, biblical, and balanced." And they really, really, really focused on that idea of balance because, of course, they were trying to combat other schools who they thought were too extreme right. in one direction, maybe whether it be the right or the left. And they, they wanted everyone to know, well, we're the balance school. We're the ones that are going to. Gonna, gonna teach the truth. And, and really, it's just another way of saying we're the ones who have it figured out. That That's, that's another way of, of people saying when they're balanced, what they're saying is, well, I've got everything figured out. And those who disagree with me, they're somehow off balance. Uh, and uh, other people, if they're not necessarily familiar with the balance fallacy, or perhaps some of the examples we're giving, you may have heard someone say that there's this pendulum swing mentality that people tend to go from one extreme to the other with like a pendulum swing. And so that's also what we're talking about here tonight. And this is something that especially I have found in churches of Christ, and I'm sure with you having a Pentecostal background and Lee having a Uh, kind of a dual background in Pentecostalism and in the Church of Christ, that more legalistic fear-based churches and religions tend to really preach this idea of balance because it really scares people of not wanting to veer off too far the course for where they're currently at. And even within the Churches of Christ, I think that Lee and I have talked about this at large with him being part of the One (laughs) Cup movement. They were kind of our scapegoat so that we could come back and say, well, we're not too extreme like the one cuppers over there. And then, of course, Lee would look at us and say, well, you know, they're they're too far to the left. And so no matter where someone is currently at in their belief system and not just in their theology, but politically, whatever it might be, you're always going to have people that you can look to and point to and say, well, they're too far to the right and too far to the left. And you were using the flat earth illustration and Lee and I, we've we've talked about that quite a bit. And uh, just how so many people. Yeah, it took years uh, for people to finally accept. And there's still people who are rejecting that because they think that's what the Bible teaches. But even within the flat earth ideology, there are people who would look at other flat earthers and call them extremes. And so you have, no matter what view, no matter what spectrum you're on, you can always look to the right and always look to the left to make yourself feel good. And I think that's what being balanced oftentimes is about. It's making yourself feel justified. It's making yourself feel good. It's making yourself feel like you're not too far one way or the other, but you're just right where you need to be. And so I think the, that's exactly the right, right and, and to Lee's point, well, um, um, you know, we to make can feel examine
1: like you're, you're exactly multiple sides of an issue, and of course, that's that's what we do in competitive debate, right? So, um, I had a debate coach, uh, former debate coach, one time, uh, tell me, and he was exactly right that there's no there's no pancake so thin that it does not have another uh, uh, other side, and that's the same thing with arguments. Um, it doesn't matter. Um, you know, how closely related they are, um, there's always two sides to it. And, and you, can, you can examine all of these issues. And certainly wisdom compels us uh, to find um, a, as much information on a topic as we can, uh, because, because wisdom is, is, is something that is expressed out of the abundance of information. But to claim a balanced position, if you think about it, is really an arrogant position because it assumes that I know the entire spectrum of all the information that is out there and that I and I alone have camped out in this middle position where where I can see both sides and where others are blinded by extremism, Then then I'm in a better position to know better. So it is it is an arrogant position, and it assumes that, that all the information that can be known is known, and, 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 and it, this goes back to your ideas, Kevin. I know you've written extensively on this, um, this idea of, of certainty and how a lot of these religious uh, systems that are steeped in legalism make a demand upon their their followers that they embrace this idea of certainty that they embrace this idea of, of we've got it figured out. When if you look at the spectrum, there are some issues that do have a right answer. And so a balanced position would assume that there is no right position. A balanced um, uh, position would assume that history hasn't judged this this idea already and found it wanting. So, um, you know... we to 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 use another example in addition to flat earth uh folks um we shouldn't see any newscast or any uh serious uh philosophical propositions that say you know what i think the nazis had a point and yeah. <laughs> you, it, we we don't why do we 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 don't hear that because History has already judged (laughs) that movement and has deemed it unacceptable. And so to say that they deserve to be heard, no, they don't. We fought a world war over that and we defeated that philosophy and it should remain defeated and it should remain exiled to a position that is unacceptable um, in a modern world.
0: Well, and whenever you think about it in those terms, that's an even stronger case than what even the flat Earth movement would be, because with the flat Earth idea, you have proof, incontrovertible proof of the sphericity of the Earth and its position in space and how it moves and how it orbits the sun and all of these other things. We have a variety of different experiments that can be conducted that can prove irrevocably and irrefutably that the Earth is a you know, at least spheroid in shape. Is it a perfect sphere? No. But is it round? Yeah, it's round. That can be proven. But whenever you think in terms of ideologies, whenever you think in terms of theologies... Or, or philosophies as it relates to libertarianism, classic liberalism, modern liberalism, conservatism, um, um, communism, socialism, and Nazism, all these isms, all of these different political ideas or social ideas, there's really no like proven right or wrong answer in the same way that, that you can go to flat earth. So if you apply this balance fallacy to that, well, you're forced to consider the merits of Nazism. You're forced to consider the merits of Hitler, and you're so, and you're forced to think, hmm. Well, maybe Hitler had a point. Maybe maybe there was something good in in all of that. Maybe it's not all bad, and we really need to consider it. And whenever you put it in those terms, it's it's absolutely right. preposterous. It's there is a moral standard that we all. I mean, killing six million Jews is absolutely wrong. We know that, and to apply the balance fallacy to something like that. Goes- it it, it goes, really does yeah. help to shed light on no, I was just how just it goes back to this idea that problem um, that it you know can people,
2: people and I pick asked,
1: and choose oh, I what they say, want to ahead, embrace mm-hmm. as as a balanced position and so no one that um, that's wants, wants to be taken seriously would ever in their mm-hmm. right mind say i think hitler had a point um and and if they did they would be quickly dismissed but they pick and choose what they want to be balanced about and so they, 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 they serve themselves and they, they want to promote themselves as a, as a reasoned individual when probably they haven't done the adequate research or study to understand whether or not it deserves a balanced position.
2: When I went to a congregation, this is after I changed and became a lot more accepting and tolerant of different views. And I went to a more grace-centered Church of Christ. This has been years ago. And I wasn't there to to work or anything of that nature as an employed minister, but we were placing membership. And before we did that, I met with the leadership there just to explain to them where I came from. And I wanted to make sure that they were okay with me being there because of how much I've changed in my past and, and those types of things. And just wanted to make sure that people uh, wouldn't wouldn't see me as a false teacher there and that we would have a true home. And one of the elders there at the church, I'll never forget this. He drew, he took a piece of paper and he drew a line. He said, well, where would you say you're at on this line? And I said, well, what do you mean? And he, he did an X on one side. He goes, well, this is the far right. And then he took an X and drew on the other side of the line. He said, this is the far left. He goes, here's the pencil, show me where you're at. And I said, well, I have no idea what you mean by the far right and the far left. (laughs) I said, in some things I would probably be considered conservative and other things liberal. In other words, it it, it depends on how we're even defining those terms to begin with, which I want to circle back around to what you said, because this really is such a subjective idea. It's even like when we use the words conservative and liberal. Well. Those words mean completely different things to different people. That's why in debate, I know that one of the first things you teach is you have to define your terms. And when you are trying to define the term balance, you can't do it. And when you're defining balance, you're always having to do so based upon two other points that other people may disagree and say, well, I don't think that's too far to the right or I don't think that's too far to the left. And so it's so subjective. And one of the examples, biblically speaking, that I think is very clear is the the Apostle Paul, because if you were applying this balance idea to Paul and say, "Well, Paul, you need to be balanced," so here he goes from killing killing Jews, uh, or excuse me, killing uh, killing enemies, not killing Jews, but killing enemies of the Jews, killing you know, the, killing Christians who are trying to bring in this new kingdom spiritually speaking and this new ideology, and here. Paul as a Jew was out saying, no, this is wrong. We need to take a stand for the truth. And he was either killing them directly or indirectly and persecuting Christians. And then all of a sudden he becomes one of the most prominent spokespeople for Christianity. And if you're taking this balance idea and say, well, wait a minute, Paul, I know that you shouldn't have been killing these Christians, but don't go to the other extreme and start trying to convert people to Christianity. I mean, maybe you can still be a faithful Jew and oppose Christianity just you can do it in a much more balanced and loving way. And we would say that's ridiculous. We'd say, well no, Paul was Paul was was right to change. He needed to change because he was he had that much to change on. He had that far to go. And depending where we're at in our spiritual life, sometimes we don't need to change a whole lot. Sometimes we need To change a whole lot, and I asked someone else about this years ago when they accused me of being out of balance. I said, "Well, if you were talking to a staunch atheist right now, and uh, you know what, what would you, where would you tell him the balance is?" I said, "Would like agnosticism? uh, Would that be in in the balance between a fundamental Christian and a?" A, you know, a staunch atheist kind of somewhere in between would be a Gnosti, you know, would be a Gnosticism and, and or being agnostic. And I said, is that something that that you would promote? They would say, well, no, I said, well, technically, that's in the that's in the middle. That's in between these two extremes here. And so no one, even when you press them on it, actually believes that truth is in the middle in reality they only believe that when it yeah, fits you're, you're their are out of balance paradigm, when you are they to, they the already created, to the created right that they're trying to force <laughs> and, everybody else into and, uh, well. so,
1: so i define uh, we have a tendency to define balance based upon how yeah. we live our <laughs> lives <And> so <laughs> yep, the
2: perspective that's exactly right. is yep.
1: all about my perspective and so we we see the world we choose to see the world through the the clouded lens of our own biases and and because of that um everybody else is is judged accordingly as to where they fall out of alignment with what we believe uh to be true and and you know this is the idea uh, a lot of times it, it used to be especially in academia and even in theology that you know the, the best way to understand the text or the best way to understand an issue, the best way to understand uh, anything in the world is to, to, to remove all of your biases and to be as objective as you can. Well, what we understand now is that this is impossible. It is impossible for me to be objective. It is impossible for me to be without bias. It is impossible for me to um, look at the world or at any issue, uh, biblically or otherwise, and then judge it without uh, taking into account my experiences and what has happened to me. The best I can do is, is to account for those biases and to account for that lack of objectivity. And, and to, to approach the text in a humble manner and say, this is my best understanding, given my limitations, given my blind spots, given my biases and, and my uh, lack of perspective, historically or otherwise, and then to, to give the accounting as much as we can. And this is why we need community, right? This is why we need other people to surround us. And for far too long, especially in Christian circles, we have elevated this idea of isolation and, and understanding the scripture within isolation or within isolated groups where we cut ourselves off from other perspectives or other understandings, and we do ourselves a disservice, and we end up just living in an echo chamber where we hear repeated back to us what we already believe, and that's a disservice to ourselves, that's a disservice to whatever it is we're trying to understand, and it's a disservice to the world that we're endeavoring to serve.
0: And whenever you say that, the first thing that comes to mind or the thing that sticks out most in my mind is this idea of it, it seems as though within evangelical Christianity and especially within the more. Um, I don't want to say fundamentalist because that's kind of a loaded term, but within those that are more, I guess, right-leaning, there is so much resistance to what you just put so well, Scott, and it's that idea that I have blind spots, I don't have it all figured out, and I can be as absolutely objective as possible. And and that really is more of a modernist perspective, whereas in in life and in philosophy and in, and in politics and in just about everything else, we've moved into more of a postmodern era. And I know it, within the within the One Cup Churches of Christ and in a lot of really, I guess, conservative circles, that idea of postmodernism, it's incredibly scary. It, it's a boogeyman and it's often misrepresented and in an effort to remain In pursuit of truth. Well, we're going to be as objective as possible. And we tell ourselves that we're going to be incredibly objective, that we can remove all of our biases, that we can know with certainty exactly what's going on. And if there seems to be some nebulous stuff there, well, then we'll just hug the middle of the road and we'll be okay. and it's, yeah. it, it's it's almost like we ignore the fact that whenever we engage in this middle of the road fallacy this balance fallacy that we are we're so mindful to remain in that modernist absolute objective perspective that we fail to see the postmodernistic leanings of that balance fallacy i mean it, it's like we're giving credence to the very thing that we rail against oftentimes
2: yeah. And also something else, Lee, when you're talking that I got to thinking about is this really does go hand in hand with the idea of knowledge and certainty, because it does assume that you know everything about everything. And so that's why you can claim that you are balanced. And as you said, Scott, this is an arrogant position. In reality, it's, it's one of superiority that I haven't figured out and nobody else does, because if you knew what I knew, you wouldn't be so far to the right or left. You would be exactly where I'm at. And I think one passage where people get this idea from the Bible, at least one passage that I heard quoted quite a bit is Joshua 1.7, where the Bible says, don't go to the right or to the left, uh, obey, obey the commandments of God. And in that passage, in that context, I mean, there's a lot, I don't want to spend the whole time talking about that, but there's a lot we could unpack within the context that would, I think, help give a lot more Understanding to that verse, but in in essence, that's not even talking about figuring out what's in the middle. That was just more of an idiom of saying, "Just do what I tell you to do." <laughs> I mean, it's not it, that that's not God saying or Joshua's, "Okay, I want you to make sure it's, look at whatever everything God said and figure out what's in the middle." That's not even what that verse is talking about. And so, people have misquoted passages like Joshua one seven and other times when similar phrases are used. I believe it's used again in Joshua, but just this idea of well. You know, even the Bible tells us that I need to be balanced. And Matthew seven, thirteen and fourteen says the the road is straight and it's narrow and I don't want to veer off to the ditch to the right or to the left. And and you hear illustrations, or at least I heard illustrations at church camp about how if you're you know, you're driving, you just got your license, especially when I was a teenager and we would go to these youth events and we would have the youth minister up there, the speaker talk about, you know, when you're driving, you you have to be careful, you have to stay on that straight, narrow road, because if you go too far to the right, you could fall off into the ditch. But if there's an oncoming car, you want to make sure that you miss it, but you don't want to fall on the other side of the ditch either. So you have to find that perfect balance. And it seems like such a rational idea as you stated up front and it's really such a simple idea. This sounds like something that just would make sense, but then just the more you look into it and you see how loaded this term is, all of a sudden you begin to see how it falls apart. Mm -hmm. And I want the audience to make sure what you're saying is not that people shouldn't study different perspectives, <laughs> but that we shouldn't assume. Yeah, that's exactly all perspectives right. Um, so
1: although there might be many different them. perspectives as, 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 out as, as, there, am I correct in saying that not every perspective is of equal weight? For instance, there's a lot of people that believe a lot of things about God, but we wouldn't give equal balance and perspective and weight and validity, to use your term, to the great religions of the world, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, and those that believe in the flying spaghetti monster. Um, Those are... Two different belief systems, right? And it's an entire spectrum. And so if we're doing a comparative of world (laughs) religions, um, we can talk about the fact that there exists these people that believe in the flying spaghetti monster. It's more of a spoof and a critique of religion than it is a valid belief system. But nevertheless, it exists. But we're not going to put that in the same category with these great religions of the world that billions of people adhere to. And you mentioned Joshua, you mentioned that passage. Um, I'm sure those folks in Jericho would have appreciated Joshua taking a more moderate and balanced approach to their slaughter, right? Um, There was nothing balanced about it. He killed everybody. Um, So, um, yeah, you've you've got to...
2: Yeah, that, that's a, that's a whole other topic altogether, too. But so, Scott, where does this come from? I mean, I know that you've studied this, and this is a question that I asked you because I just found it fascinating that a lot of these ideals that we hold dear and think that somehow are so special, when we start to see that this actually came from something else, and we're just we've just kind of adopted it into our belief system. What's some of the history behind sure. this? This thought process—where did this come from? And I know we can't necessarily pinpoint it and say this is when it all began, because I'm sure from the beginning of time, people have have always thought in various ways. But I know, yeah, that there's and some so like with most everything really in, in our Western
1: cultures human thought, um, and, and Western come, civilization, you can trace these concept. ideas back to Aristotle. Um, and Aristotle had this idea about morality uh, that was known as the golden mean, and what. Aristotle's golden mean defined uh, moral virtue as a middle state determined by practical wisdom that emphasizes moderation and temperance. And and as we're discussing these ideas, I don't want people to hear us and say that we're not advocating for moderation and temperance. I think those are good virtues for us to embrace generally. Um, But in, in, in some instances and in some issues... Um, it is not a virtuous position to take a, 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 a moderate or a temperate uh, position on some of these issues. But as with everything, we trace it back to Aristotle and, and Aristotle you know, was, was uh, this, this great teacher um, who came along and, and established the academy. And so everything that we do um, at the university where I teach Um, because I'm at at a Christian, a private Christian university, I I tell our students that we're here because of of two people in history. Basically, uh, we're here because of Aristotle and because of Jesus. And depending upon what you're studying at any particular time at the university, uh, you have those two men to thank for what you are uh, learning. And so we, we, we are governed by that And we have this this great tradition, especially in America, as it has evolved, that we that we sort of pride ourselves as, uh, you know, enjoying life, but not too much. We and it shows up in in country music. It shows up in in all of the the artifacts of our our culture. Um, Think about how many country music songs that that you can think of that that have the theme of, man, I work hard all week but then I play hard on the weekend or Saturday night. I'm at the honky tonk Sunday morning. I'm in the church pew. What is that communicating? (laughs) It's communicating balance that I know how to have a good time, but I know how to be a good old boy too. I love my mama. I love Jesus, but I drink beer and I trust. So, you know, it, 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 in the end, in the end, it all balances out and and this 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 idea that comes from Aristotle had <laughs> an Eastern version as well with with Confucius who had a, a golden mean and and was just a, a little bit different because uh, the, the idea of the golden mean as Confucius was concerned. it was more commonly known as the compromise principle and says that that moral virtue is the appropriate location between two extremes. So um, at least those in the, the Eastern thought and, and philosophy had had a more nuanced uh, perspective in that they would look they would try to look at, at more of the issues and not just what they judge to be the extremes and would try to find the appropriate position. But this impacts um, so many people in, in Christian circles, because how many people do you come into contact with on a daily basis and even sitting on our church pews that have some idea of the afterlife as being, well, when I stand before the judgment seat of God, I, I just hope that my good outweighs my bad. And there, there's that idea of balance once again, right? That I've done some bad things. We recognize that nobody's perfect. But yeah. we, we compare ourselves to one another. and We say, well, I'm not. And, and here's another example of the, the balance fallacy. I'm not Mother Teresa, but I'm not Hitler. I'm somewhere in between. And because I'm somewhere in between, then one day I'll stand before God and hopefully my good will outweigh my bad and everything will be all right in eternity. When if you read the Bible, the Bible doesn't take a balanced position When it comes to the nature of our sin, the Bible doesn't take a balanced position when it comes to the nature of of our goodness. It says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so if we put ourselves on a spectrum in comparison to others, there will be uh, shades of gray. There will be um, uh, various uh, nuances of good and evil. But that's not the comparison the Bible makes. The comparison the Bible makes is between ourselves and the righteous character of God. And based upon that, there is no balance. We all fall short. (laughs) Great show. Well, thanks to
2: you, Scott. And after recommending The Good Place (laughs) on Netflix... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> I have I have learned everything that I need to learn about philosophy and and the and the afterlife from cheaty and other characters. but yeah it, it it is that idea even within Christendom oftentimes that I just need to make sure I'm doing more good than bad. And it's not even a license to do bad per se. It's just when we get in, you know when we're looking back on our lives and we're trying to take inventory of what we've done, if we've done a lot of good things that week, we feel good about ourselves, which is not what, th- that's not really the way it works. We sh- I think we should feel good. I think God, you know, is, created us to feel joy. There's no doubt about that, but it's not about our own joy, our own righteousness of patting ourselves on the back and saying, look at how good I am. I think that's the whole point Jesus makes is you pointed out God is all good and as humans we fall way short and we've all sinned. There's no there's none who are righteous, no, not one. And so it's only through the righteousness of God can we be saved. And when you talk about balance, right, I've never thought of it this way, but as you were talking, that feeds in almost to the idea that I can earn my way to heaven if I do enough good works. I'm sure most people wouldn't put it in that term, those terms, but that is that, that can be a catalyst. That balanced belief can be a catalyst for saying, well, I'm going to earn my way to heaven because I'm going to tip the scales in the right direction. And we can even turn faith into that, that, well, we're saved by grace through faith and grace is God's part, faith is my part. So I have to make sure I tip the balance or tip the scales enough in, in the right way so that God ultimately saves me in the end. And so that's fascinating that this has a long history in Aristotle and Confucius, and g- getting into the the history there of that because I just right. I, f- I find that fascinating that this isn't just something we came up with. It's not some sort some sort of hard fast rule, but and it's it continues just to evolve. That, you know, as you continue to look mankind, through history, there there were other thinkers and, that, and that were come starting to and, see. There's a so lot what of I tell
1: my students um, in persuasion and in in the cultural classes that I teach. The the metaphor that I use is that that culture is like a river. So we're all being swept along in this river. And just like if you were to ask a fish what it's like to to breathe water, the fish would say, what is this water you speak of? Um, We don't ever step back to think about culture and how it impacts it, because this is just our normal. We're swimming in it. We're living in it. But if you look throughout history, there were certain thinkers and philosophers and ideas that came along that impacted the river there were there were ideas that were put in the river that continue to influence all of us today even though we are uh, far downstream from when these people lived and if you look to immanuel uh, kant he comes along and he comes up with with what is known as the categorical imperative so uh, kant's categorical imperative dictates uh, very similar to the ideas of jesus and other moral teachers that that you must do um, unto others what you would want them to do unto you or to act as if your personal decisions uh, and actions could become universal law. And the idea behind uh, Kant's categorical imperative is that most people are going to err on the side of, of doing good because we want good things to come our way. But but if but just a a cursory glance at the world will tell us that this falls because there are lots of people whose definitions of good and evil are messed up, whose definitions of love and hate are are convoluted. And so they respond to the world um, in the way that they've been responded to. And and this just perpetuates the cycle of hurt and hate that goes on. So in, in a perfect world, that would be a great principle. Um, but unfortunately, most of us are are selfish. Uh, even Christian theology teaches that you know we're we're far from God, and so when we act in selfish ways, those selfish ways do not generally manifest themselves uh, in 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 good ways, but but unfortunately, come out in bad ways. Um, and so, as as nations of the world came together, and and people began to um, uh, Attempt to forge governments and, and to come up with the best way of self-determination. Uh, they, they, looked, they looked to Immanuel Kant. They looked to a man by the name of uh, uh, John Stuart Mill, uh, who had this principle of utility that dictates um, that we must seek uh, the greatest happiness for the greatest number of people. A lot of times this is referred to as utilitarianism, the greatest good for the greatest number of people. Well, that's a good idea unless you're not in the greatest number of people. Uh, If you're you're in the minority and, you know, the the greatest number of people in a particular country have determined (laughs) that this is the direction for the greatest good, that we eliminate all of you that we don't like. Well, that's that's going to be a problematic position uh, to take on. And so um in debate, what we do a lot of times is we give these framing mechanisms and sometimes we use utilitarianism or we use Kant's categorical imperative or the golden mean as a way a- of, of of evaluating uh, value statements and 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 um, what would be the the most uh, have the most moral impact upon uh, a people. And so John Stuart Mill certainly advanced these ideas, um, but it's that's not where it stopped. Um, Then came along a guy by the name of John Rawls. And and John Rawls' innovation was uh, what was called the veil of ignorance that asked us to assume that we don't know which stakeholder position we would find ourselves in. So we remove our personal interest from the analysis. So this is the idea that um, developed uh, and was very popular at the midpoint of the 20th century. And really throughout the 20th century, this idea that we've got to be as objective as possible. But as we, as we mentioned earlier, this is an impossibility. I cannot adequately remove my experiences or my thoughts or my understanding from the judgments that I make um, on the world and on others that are around me. And so objectivity, total objectivity, is impossible. So we see to various extents, and certainly this isn't an exhaustive list. But these are some of the great thinkers that continue to impact how we how we govern ourselves, how we view one another, and how we make judgment uh, and, and and moralistic uh, laws and and principles in our lives.
0: Well, Scott. Over the last couple of thousand years, it's just it's so interesting to see that people have wrestled with this concept and this idea and have recognized more or less kind of the error of this modality of thinking. And it's, it's really no wonder that it's something that we still struggle with today. I mean, if, if this is something that was going on in Confucius's era and Aristotle's era, and if Kant had something to say about it and, and all these other things and all these thinkers that are way smarter than I am, if, if this is a struggle that's been going on for a long time, well, it, it, does, it necessarily kind of gives me a, a little bit of hope for humanity that maybe we won't exactly figure it out. But <laughs> if if we can at least recognize that this is the case, maybe we can begin to achieve a, a higher level of thought in in that. So, Kevin, sorry, I, I kind of cut in the same time you did. Go ahead.
2: No, you're good, man. Um, yeah, the, the idea of humility is something that I have had to learn. I've been forced to learn over the past five to six years. And one of the reasons why I enjoy this podcast so much is because it's not always just just me and Lee talking, but that we're able to bring other people on who know a whole lot more than we do about various topics. And I'm just humbled every time that we have someone come on because it reminds me of everything I don't know. And that has that's really what has helped to humble me and also open my eyes to see that for example, this, this idea of balance is just, it's unattainable. It's, it doesn't even make proper sense. Logically speaking, it's not intellectually honest. And we've had people who have reached out to, to me, and I think Lee's had people who've reached out to him and they've asked, well, Kevin, why, why do you have different people on your show, especially sometimes with different ideas? And people have even told me it has confused them. And I've talked to other people who say it kind of shakes their faith a little bit. And my response is, well, I don't think that's shaking your faith. I think that's shaking your pride. And because what you're you're realizing is Mm -hmm. that there are people out there who have thought things and who have answered questions that you've not even thought to ask yet. And that in and of itself opens us up to a whole new world of realization that, wow, I don't have all the answers because you point, you brought this up earlier. It's easy when you keep people censored uh, or information censored, the the Mormon church is really good at doing this. And as always, we like to put disclaimers. We're not, we're not knocking anyone. If they're Mormon out there, we're, we, we love them just as much as we love ourselves and anyone else. But the, the logic they use, the methods they go about trying to figure out truth, I don't think is healthy. I think it's very toxic because, while they're doing their missionary um, journeys, they're not able to receive any other material from anyone other than what has been approved by their superiors. And I actually had a conversation one time during this two-year period where he said he had not read anything. You know, They, they, they can barely even talk to their family during this time because they don't want any outside influence. And a buddy of mine at that time at that point in time we were actually living together as roommates and this was when we were both in preaching school and we had a couple of, of mormons come and talk to us and we just invited them in listened to them started to uh, to have good bible discussion with them and we were playing it very cautious and what that meant is I wasn't taking the lead. My friend was because I didn't know what caution was back then. Um, because I thought I thought he was too patient with them. I'm like, man, we need to just start teaching them the truth here. And he was just listening. You know, we would have two hour sessions where he didn't hardly talk at all. He would just listen to what they had to say. I'm like, man, what are you doing? You know, we need to convert their souls. And but um, you know, it, it's it's it was interesting because finally they had to move one of the one of one of the men because my roommate, he had such good discussion that he started having him question things. And so they ended up having him relocated. But that's why I think it's important to to study, to understand different positions, understand different views, because the more you know, the more you you don't know. <laughs> the more you know, you don't know. And that helps to combat this idea of, well, I'm in the middle because I know what the far right is and I know what the far left is and I know the whole spectrum and I've studied every single thing and so therefore I'm right there in the middle. No, nobody has done that. Nobody ever will be able to accomplish that in this short life. It's impossible because there's constantly new ideas that are being formulated there's so many different thoughts out there there's no way we could tackle them all even if we wanted to and so that is the key ingredient that i have learned is just humility having humility that when someone asks well kevin do you think you're balanced i'm like well look i I'm like everybody else. I'm doing what I think is right. <laughs> and if, if that means balance to you, if that means sound to you, if that means scriptural to you, whatever word you want to call it, that's what I'm trying to do. But that's what everybody is ultimately trying to do and be. That, that's everyone's trying. If they're a Christian, they're trying to follow God the best they can. But that's probably going to look very different from one person to another. It's not probably going to look very different. It will look very different from person to person. So, Scott, what would you say then is the best way overall to to approach the search for truth and the the way that we should, should treat one another? And when we're presented with ideas, Instead of saying, well, I'm going to go with the one that's somewhere in the middle. If we look to the example of Jesus, if we look to the example of of the apostles, but specifically the
1: the example of Jesus, we see him loving people without condition. Um, And that was the way that he um, interacted with the people that were around him. Uh, He was always willing to tell people the truth. Um, He wasn't dishonest, but uh, it was always... Uh, guided by love. And so if, if we embrace this, this agape principle, right, this, this, this unconditional love. So let's say, for example, that I live next door to uh, an atheist or someone who, who disavows God or someone who is engaged in a lifestyle that maybe I disagree with or uh, that I might deem um, um, not Christian or, or unbiblical in, in some perspective. Um, it is not a balanced position for me to condemn them, for me not to speak to them, for me not to uh, love them. But the best way for me to interact with them, if I'm following the example of Jesus, is to love them. And, and if you think about how Jesus lived, he certainly didn't live his life when it came to love via this, this, this notion of moderation or temperance. Jesus was all in. He was fully invested in the, the hearts and lives of those that were around him. So my best route then as someone who is a person of faith, and, and this would apply to anyone really, uh, even if you don't claim to be a person of faith, is simply to love people and to want the very best for them. So let's say that that my next door neighbor um, is engaged in a, 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 a lifestyle um, that I would deem to be um, not uh, biblical, uh, not according to the, the virtues of Scripture. Um, let's say perhaps they are um, cohabitating with one another. They're not in, 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 a, in, in what I would define as a, as a biblical marriage, or um, they are uh, in a same-sex relationship. If I want the very best for that person, if I want the very best for that couple, if I want them to flourish, then my um, my perspective is not going to be one that condemns them. It's not going to be one that beats them over the head. Um, but from the perspective of, of the United States of America that I am privileged to live in, I want them to be treated equally under the law and have the same privileges and rights that I have under the law. Does that mean that I embrace Um, their lifestyle? Not necessarily, but it means that because I'm living and being guided by the principle of, of agape love, which is committed to the flourishing of human beings, because the relationship that they're involved in, they define it as love, then I want the very best for them. I want the very best. I want them to be treated equally. I want them to be treated as just like I'm treated by the governing authorities. I want to be kind. I want to be nice. I want to be helpful. I want to exhibit a servant's attitude, and I want to be as committed as possible to helping that couple flourish, even though I may disagree with the details of their relationship.
2: Well, Scott, it's funny you bring that up because literally today someone had made a comment, sent me a message in regard to one of my most recent articles and in post, where I was asking the question: is or was Jesus countercultural? And uh, I, you know, I, I gave some some ways in which he was, and some ways he, in which he wasn't. My point is, we don't really need to just try to figure out how we can be countercultural. Instead, we need to see how Jesus was, and and try to follow that the best we can. And a few examples I gave is that Jesus always put the good of people over the strictness of the law. And, you know, whether it was the Sabbath or people, hey, there, you know, your disciples aren't following it the way that, that we think it should be, or to the letter of the law, or whether it was touching a leper, which was a violation of the law. Jesus was always putting people over that strictness, the literalness of the law. And Jesus also chose mercy over judgment. He loved the marginalized. And he taught idealistic kingdom living, but he also taught that we're to forgive others and ourselves when we fall short, because we all do, as we talked about just a few moments ago. Well, this comment, this response that someone had is, is they they asked me, they said, well, how far can acceptance and tolerance go? Can it accept and tolerate tolerate sin through some sugarcoating called love? And how do we define those who are marginalized? How do we define the oppressed? Did Jesus promote social justice? And he goes on to say, I find most parts of your article and statement true, but I just still uh, find myself uh, thinking that you're trying to fit the narrative of some dangerous ideologies. <laughs> and I, I'm not going to respond because I can kind of see where that's going already. But it's it's this idea that if we if we treat everyone too nice, we're not being balanced. You know, We, we don't, we don't want to love too much. We don't want to show too much mercy. And I thought about, did Jesus ever have boundaries on his grace and his mercy? And as you pointed out, that doesn't mean that we don't teach what we think is truth, that we don't stand behind what we think is right. But ultimately, the greater right was always treating others the way we want to be treated, period. Even if that did, you know, we always say, oh, that's just sugarcoating it. Well, if that's sugarcoating it, call me a sugarcoater. I want to be whatever Jesus was. And even Paul himself in Galatians said that if you want to know what the law is, it's loving your neighbor as yourself. And as I was reading his comments earlier today, and he was asking, well, who are the marginalized? you know, well, well, who who are the oppressed? I couldn't help but think, and I'm not necessarily putting this commenter in the category, but I couldn't help but think of the man who came up Jesus, and when Jesus said, well, love your neighbor unconditionally. And the question was, well, Jesus, who is my neighbor? <laughs> what do you mean I have to love my neighbor? And then he, of course, gives the uh, parable of the Good Samaritan to show that whoever you don't think is your neighbor is your neighbor. <laughs> and so whoever, you know, and, and I just find though that, This balance ideology hinders us from loving fully. It 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 gives us almost an excuse not to have to love fully because we can say, Well, I don't want to love too much. I don't want to show too much mercy and too much grace. But the Bible says that we're sin abounded, grace abound even that much more. So we can't out sin God's grace. We can't do it. And I know some people, especially in my background, may say, Well, what about Romans 6, 1 and 2? But I'm talking about generally speaking, when we Get into this idea of, of balance. If that's the idea, yeah. We imagine into, if Jesus loved us from fully loving the way that Jesus. Imagine
1: loved. if Jesus loved us with moderation and with temperance. Um, there was nothing. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for that technical theological point, there, Kevin. We'd be screwed. Uh, but the point is, yeah, exactly. <laughs> 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 there, there, You know, there was nothing. There was nothing moderate about oh, the screwed Jesus up fallacy. You know, <laughs> there was nothing moderate <laughs> about him saying, "For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son." There's nothing moderate about grace, and that's what makes grace so scandalous. That's why us law keepers and us rule keepers get so bent out of shape when Jesus tells stories about giving the the people that showed up at the last hour to work the same wage as he gave the the people that worked all day long um we we scream jesus that's not fair that's not balanced and and jesus says exactly that's the point that's how much god loves us that's how much the the mercy of christ reaches out to us that it embraces all of our inadequacies, it embraces all of our marginalization. And I find it interesting that Jesus always reserved his harshest rebukes for those who who, who wrap themselves in the law and in the rules and said, We're the ones that have it all figured out. Um, Jesus reserved condemnations for the religious and not for the sinner. Um, and, and of course, all of them were sinners and all of them needed the gospel. But the point that I'm making is that Jesus was all in with, with the way that he loved. And, and what, what, what a novel concept if we actually were followers
0: of Jesus. Well, and to be a follower of Jesus, to be Christian means to be Christ-like, and to be Christ-like means that we take this idea of balance, at least in this case, and in even more than this case, and we leave that behind because that's truly not the best way to go through this. Is it's most definitely not a Christ-like perspective. And Scott, whenever you said, you know, yeah. what if Jesus was balanced and and was uh, uh, what, what was the word that you used? Use moderation in showing his love for us. Well, he would have never gone to the cross. and I, I really appreciated what you said about demonstrating love to others if they're living their lives in a way that that we don't necessarily agree with. I mean, how many of those people in Jesus' day and time that he dealt with, those sinners that he ate with, those tax collectors, those harlots and prostitutes that he spent so much of his ministry and so much of his time extending love and mercy and grace towards, what if we treated people like that? What if we treated those people that are on the margins of society with the same love that Jesus showed to those sinners in his day? Would Christianity be on the decline that it is now? I don't think it would be. Would Christianity be castigated in the media as being some backwards, out-of-touch philosophy for life or or religion that's focused on, on mad superstition and things like that? I don't think that it would. I think that if we truly loved as Jesus loved then Christianity would be, I mean, it, of course, it's a dominant philosophy and, and in the United States, but I don't think it would be on the decline that it's on now if Christians truly loved as Jesus loved.
2: Yeah, no, no one has ever um, murdered anyone because they loved them without boundaries. And that's why I thought the the response or the comment that I had received today on one of my articles was so telling, mm-hmm. because yeah. we do know what it is like when we place boundaries on love. You, you have crusades, you have racism, you have inquisitions, you have all sorts of, of hatred that is not just hatred, but it's a justified hatred. It is, a, it is sometimes a, a hatred that is motivi- motivated by an understanding that I'm not supposed to have an unconditional love. And that's what's so scary is when we either justify our hate or we say, well, true love will correct someone. And that's another conversation that I've had recently with an individual. Well, True Love corrects someone. I said, well, that's great. I said, but the problem is what if I don't believe I need correcting and you do? To what extent do you think that you're supposed to, to change me? I said, because if you've ever studied the Inquisition, that's exactly what that was, is, well, we think we need to correct these people. We think we need to get them to see things the way we see it. And so we're going to torture them. We're going to punish them. And we're doing so out of a pure motive because we love them so much that we would rather them be tortured on earth for a short amount of time than be tortured forever in hell. So we're actually doing them a favor and this is showing our love to them. And we end up redefining what love is because I always come back to this. I used to be one of those who say that God can do whatever he wants to. I don't believe that. I don't believe that the God I serve can do whatever he wants to. I believe that. If that's the case, God is a liar and if God is a liar, then he is not worth serving. because if, if, if I trust that Jesus Christ is my faith is in Jesus Christ, then Jesus is God, it is God incarnated. Jesus showed us who, who God is. And Jesus showed us the type of love. So we don't have to guess what love is. Like if I'm wondering, well, who is my neighbor? Jesus gave a parable explaining who my neighbor is. God gave a parable explaining who my neighbor is. If I want to know what it looks like to love the marginalized, I'm going to look to the example of Jesus. And if ever my love is not in in agreement with the kind of love that God demonstrated while he was here on earth through Jesus Christ, then it's not love. And that's what's so scary to me is we're willing to 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 say, well, we, we're, we're gonna love this individual no matter no matter what, which means I'm gonna treat them, ex, you know, in this way. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna treat them in a way that seems very unloving according to everything within us and even according to Jesus, but I'm doing it out of love. <laughs> and so I think so much of this balance fallacy, it's not just a philosophical, Good lesson to learn from. If this isn't just trying to say, well, hey, we're going to have a professor on here to explain why we don't need to fall for the balance fallacy. This really bleeds yeah, over absolutely. into a lot. And, and look at look a lot, lot of they practical application, Jesus as in, especially in the, in the, the life testament of a in the gospels.
1: Uh, a glutton and a wine bibber, someone who excessively ate and excessively drank, uh, and worked Absolutely. A friend of sinners. That was his label. And he embraced that. And a friend of sinners. Uh, to the point that, you know, the, the religious Pharisees and the law keepers of his day looked at him and accused him of being exactly uh, part of the company that that he kept. And so, so the common retort uh, when we when we say things like this, is is people say, well, you know, you got to be careful. Uh, you don't want your your good to be evil spoken of. Well, Jesus had his good be evil spoken of. They accused him of of, of of being these things. And imagine if we were more like Jesus, so that the religious Pharisees of our day, imagine if we were so merciful that the religious Pharisees of our day questioned our salvation maybe that's where we need to be, right? Where they look at us and wonder, are you really saved? Because you're, you're loving these people so much because you're showing this kindness. And, 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 and believe me, I I don't want to hold myself up as, as a paragon of someone that's got this figured out. I'm, I'm far from that. And, 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 you know, as, as I'm talking, what I'm doing is I'm preaching myself under conviction here, because I know that in most instances, I fall into the category of the religious Pharisee, and I, I, I'm i not hanging out with Jesus. I'm not hanging out with those sinners. I'm not hanging out with those that Jesus loved.
2: <laughs> well, you're just well, being balanced, Scott. That's yeah, all. Right. Right. Well, I was <laughs> going to say, Absolutely. Scott, if, if you're loving Absolutely. so
0: radically that people and are questioning your and, salvation, and, and that, that doesn't where, seem to be a very balanced approach, brother.
1: <laughs> That's the, um, that, the, well, those are the kinds of people oh, go ahead, go that ahead, make sorry. a difference in, in the world. Those, those are the kinds of people that, um, you know, use, use, uh, what they're saying, the truth that they embrace with and the passion with which they deliver it and the compassion with which they, they serve others. Those are the kinds of people that end up changing the world. That is the leverage that moves the world. Um, you know, uh, there's a saying that well-behaved women rarely make history. I think that's true for anybody, men or women. Um, if you're, if you're going to, if you're going to stake out a position where you're, you're not going to be offensive to anyone, you're, you're not going to say anything that hurts anyone. You're just going to, you know, live there in the middle. Well, you know, sometimes uh, truth demands that, that, that we speak it uh, in a way that the people in the back can hear us. Um, love, demands that we express it in a way that 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 people feel it um, and it's not just paying lip service but it's but it's an actual service to those that are hurting and to those that are in need so, so justice demands that, you know, sometimes we march, sometimes we, we, we raise our fist and, and sometimes we take up a bullhorn and, and we, we, we um, engage in civil disobedience and we push back against the system because it's so unjust. Um, so sometimes there the inequalities and, and the, the injustices and the marginalization, and, and and the evil is so great that it that it demands um, a, a, a powerful pushback um, that, that we have to embrace as Christians. And so there's there's no, there's no room for moderation. There's no room for balance in those instances because to do so, uh, we keep missing the point. As, as I'm saying this, I'm reminded of, of Dr. King's famous letter from from a Birmingham jail when he was in prison for, uh, his civil disobedience there in, in Alabama and riding from that jail cell, uh, he famously laments, uh, the fact that, um, you know, the, the, the white moderate, um, you know, is not going to come to the service of those that are, uh, valiantly, uh, protesting for, for civil rights. Um, because basically what he says in that letter is that the white moderate empowers, those that are at the other extreme. It empowers the KKK. It empowers the white supremacy, because in in those instances, for people to take a balanced approach to, to such injustices that are so blatant in the world empowers and perpetuates those injustices. So it took a personality and a power Uh, as forceful as Dr. King's to lead that movement and to sit in a prison and to say, you know, the time has passed for us to work with moderates. Uh, We need people that are committed uh, to to this cause. And as he said in his I Have a Dream speech, uh, it's the fierce urgency of now. That that piece of rhetoric embodies uh, how we as Christians should live. If we truly believe that the gospel is the only hope for the world, then we need to share it in in the most loving and dramatic way possible because I'm convinced, as I'm sure you are as well, that only the gospel of Jesus Christ can make a difference in this world. And so we cannot afford to be moderate or balanced when it comes to the gospel of Christ.
0: very well said brother very well said was i can't think of a better note to end on than that right there I, I think that that's a perfect summation of of this entire topic and while it's good to have balance and things like diet that doesn't necessarily mean that that's the right. way it's should be or that's even the best road to take whenever we're in pursuit of truth because truth doesn't really care about balance truth cares about truth. And there's no better exemplar of truth than Christ himself. So Scott, thank you again for coming on and for this discussion. This has been a wonderful discussion. And I, I know I can speak for Kevin as yeah, as well you. as myself. Whenever I say we, we really enjoy you, we appreciate you, and we're looking forward to having you on again at some point in the future. So to that end, Yes. Thank you, man. We want to thank our listeners. We always want to thank all of you out there that listen, that share in this podcast. Our audience is growing every day. We are wow. growing in number as far as listeners go. And we thank all of you for sharing our podcast.
2: 4.8 million each week, right? Is that what we're at? 4.8 million downloads right now? Well,
0: that would be amazing. But no, we're not <laughs> quite there yet. No, We're, we're, we're,
2: a- so, we're somewhere in between. We're somewhere in, in zero. The, yeah, that we're balanced. Zero. Yeah,
0: yeah, we're somewhere between <laughs> there and zero. We're balanced. <laughs> now uh, we're about to cross the uh, seventeen thousand download threshold, which is pretty cool. So we're, we're growing. It's, it's very cool to see that growth take place. That tells us that what we're doing is making an impact and it's resonating enough with all of you out there that you're willing to share it and tell others about it. So please continue to do so. Give us that five-star review on iTunes, on Google podcasts, on whatever platform it is that you choose to consume this podcast, share it with your friends. If you have any questions or comments or concerns, if you just need prayer and would like prayer, Drop us a line. We have our email address in the show notes below. We thank all of you and we look forward to being with you again soon.